Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you turn with me again to John chapter 20? And let's read verses 19 to 23. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his disciples and his side, showed unto them his hands and his side, Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. Whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Well, congregation, what would you not give to live in those days after the resurrection of Christ? For 40 precious uh, days, this world was graced with the presence of the glorified Christ. In a very special way, those who were among his friends and family got a taste of heaven. Indeed, one could say that to know Christ in the days of his earthly ministry was a great honor, but in these days where Christ had passed through the torments of his crucifixion and risen from the grave in great power and, and glory, to meet with Christ in those days, to hear him and speak to him, to see him, to touch him, such is an honor that surely our hearts would yearn for. And sometimes it's surprising to me that this particular point in the Lord Jesus' mission is not dwelt upon in great length in many of the gospel writers. It seems that It was left in particular to the Gospel of John to dwell at some length, at any rate two chapters, about some of these encounters. And to me, they are some of the most precious portions of all of Scripture. I think that perhaps we think that if we could have somehow, with Mary, grasped hold of this Redeemer and and kept him down here upon earth, how... The Christian life and the existence of the church would be so different. Perhaps if the church had her king among her, as in those days, we could turn to him for such a direct source of wisdom and guidance. Perhaps he would sort out all the problems that afflict the church and all, all would be well. So our minds might think, But I'm persuaded that though Christ had good reasons for ascending unto heaven and being the Lord to reign from that place of great exaltation, to have these encounters preserved for us is a great support to our faith and something that we will take much benefit to reflect upon. I'd like to especially look at uh, 
this encounter that we've read from verses 19 to 23 in chapter 20 of John's Gospel. And we'll consider simply the appearance of the risen Christ, the appearance of the risen Christ. And we'll see uh, Christ announces peace, Christ displays his wounds, and Christ explains our mission. So Christ announces peace, Christ displays his wounds, and Christ explains our mission. First, we see Christ announces peace. This is what we see in verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. If we would understand Christ's purpose in announcing peace in this encounter, it's good to regard the context in which this announcement comes there. They are the uh, ten disciples that at this point, Judas having, having gone to his own place, Thomas being absent, and it appears from Luke's account of this, perhaps some other followers of Jesus with them as well. And John takes great care to note that it is on the first day what we call Sunday or the Lord's Day, that they gather together. It is a theme in these last chapters that from the very beginning of this point in church history, it seems that the first day was set apart for the people of God to gather together. And what an encounter that would have been. You can see that that news has been received that Christ is risen, and indeed some of these disciples have even witnessed the empty tomb. And so as they are gathering together on the evening hour of that first resurrection Sunday, we ought to see that there is faith in their gathering together. Surely if they would take the time to come together and to encourage one another on this first day of the week, it is because they think that the Lord is not done with them. That they are not to return to their fisher nets, not to return to their tax booths, not to return simply to their families and, and callings, but the Lord who has separated them has a purpose for this group. The congregation of the Lord's choosing and appointment must be together. They must come together, not merely as a human institution, but as those who are tied together with the strong bonds of Christ's love for them. Such a gathering is surely a place to speak of this one who has called them out of darkness into his light, to compare what it is that they have discerned about his work for them. What a wonderful thing to see the faith exercised in this way, coming together as the Lord's people. It's a precious thing also today. Throughout these 2,000 years, this is where the Lord is especially at work in the souls of his people. It is here where we would expect that the Lord's gracious presence would manifest itself. 
And of course, there's trouble in this gathering. Uh, you notice that they took care, it says, to shut the doors. And why was that? Because there was this fear of the Jews. I believe particularly speaking there of those who were the leaders in the synagogues, the teachers, the uh, Pharisees, and as well even the, going to the very highest level of the, of the priesthood and the high priest himself. They had all had a hand in the murder of their master. And so it would only stand to reason that they were next, that their days were numbered, surely it would not be so hard to gather the names of each one of those who named the name of Christ, to pick off this inner circle, and finally, to the understanding of these enemies of Christ, is this movement will be at an end. And so you have this group of, of believers huddled together to speak of the Lord. On the outside, they are besieged by a hostile world. Do we not see so many echoes of how the true people of God find themselves even in our own day, in our own time. A culture that grows increasingly dark and hostile to the Christian faith. You walk walk down any street, you knock on any door, you speak to any co-worker and is it not so palpable that this is a land of such spiritual hardness and apostasy. And do we not see with the, the growing confusion about God's laws concerning gender, about the increasing uh, de- denigration of the image bearers of God and, and all the rights and liberties that they ought to have enjoyed according to God's law, that in the forsaking of these things there is ultimately at root a hostility to the Lord Jesus, to his church and to his gospel. And so it is also today that we gather together in a context of indeed seeking the Lord's presence and blessing, but as well recognizing that dark clouds hang upon the horizon, that we are in a land covered in spiritual darkness, and not least that which is felt in our own souls as we see the principles and powers of the world seeking to drag us into its sway. But it's here. It's here in this context that Jesus Christ appears to them. What a glorious miracle this is. And there's been different attempts to explain it. How is it you can have a, a, closed, um, a closed room with the doors barred and there you are huddled together and there it is Jesus Christ standing in the midst of them. And I would not want to... Um, to dispute those uh, who would say that this is a singular miracle wrought by the Son of God in order to display the glorious powers that he possesses as one who has conquered death, sin, and the grave. Indeed, he is a true man, a true, uh, a true one who has a physical body despite having passed through his resurrection uh, state And yet now the Lord is unveiling his divine glory in a very peculiar and amazing way to manifest his presence among this group of disciples huddled together for encouragement 
and out of a common concern about their futures. It's this, really, that we always long for, isn't it? It's so easy to be caught up in the daily cares and sorrows of this life, to be driven by fears and anxieties that come upon us as great and terrible um, powers that seek to wrest away every form of true joy in our souls. But that which revives and strengthens the people of God is where Christ is pleased to manifest his presence. And yes, we ought not to expect that Christ would do so in that way precisely, but surely every revelation of his of his glorious person to us and to our souls. It is that which is so precious and to be longed for. This is the context, also his great and miraculous presence. But so much for the context. Let's look at the content of this announcement of peace. He says simply, peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. And no less than John Calvin himself said that, well, we're not to read into that whatsoever. You see, in, in those days, that was the ordinary greeting that one Jewish person would give to another. Peace be unto you. In the same way that you might um, say, good day, or, or some, something like that. And so... Uh, Calvin and others have said, well, there's, there's really nothing else to be found here. It's just, just a simple greeting. But I, I think that there's actually more going on. Did you not notice that even as we read the chapter that there's something of the emphasis on these words that's coming through? He, he says it not once but three times in the space of a single chapter. Peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. He's... As it were, taking up this common greeting and he's filling it with a significance that he would have us recognize and, and reflect upon. He's making those words his own and, as it were, standing for the uh, entire covenant uh, of grace that perhaps the Jews had, had adopted this word from. Speaking of the grace and, and peace that comes. To, from God to sinful humanity. He, he truly fulfills this greeting. And, and I think that if you would see that in, in its richer context, it's good to go back earlier on in this gospel and, and notice that Jesus had, had spoken to them in the final hours before his arrest. In John chapter 14, in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give, a, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither be afraid. So here we have, as a great benefactor, leaving a precious inheritance in a will. He is leaving something with us as a special gift. He is leaving peace. Peace be unto you. And he says, this is no ordinary peace. This is no ordinary greeting. It's not just what the world can give. Someone in the world can say, well, peace be unto you. Go your way. All is, 
all is well, but nothing comes from it because the words of men are like that. They just fall to the ground and accomplish nothing. But here is the word of the risen Christ. He is the one who appears before these men and says, Peace be unto you. It's like when uh, earlier on in, in their um, knowing this glorious Savior, in Mark chapter 4 and verse 39, there was that amazing encounter where the, the disciples and Jesus were caught in a great and terrible storm. Great billows of wind were blowing up a, a great cauldron of chaos upon the Sea of Galilee, and their little ship seemed as though it was going to be destroyed and, and brought to nothing. And Jesus, he has but to speak the word, to rebuke that wind, and to say unto the sea, Peace, be still. And all of a sudden, all of the, the sea and the wind, they give way to him, and they are left in astonishment. Who is this that even the the wind and the waves obey him. A lesson there. Just as that little group on that ship were safe because of a single word from Christ, so also now he comes to them and says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of the Jews. Don't be afraid of anything. Peace be with you. Where he says it, surely he can bring it to pass. So there's someone here who does not know something of this peace. Well, let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about the peace that Jesus can give, that he can give to you today, even with a single word from his precious mouth. The first thing to be said about him, that it is peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To be at peace with God is to be at peace with the one who made you. To be at peace with the one who is the very reason for your existence. It is to be at peace with one that you have sinned against all your life long. We come into this world as enemies of God. We have declared war against a holy and a righteous creator and judge, against one who is supremely lovely and worthy of our devotion. We have made ourselves those who are his enemies, deserving of eternal destruction. But where we were completely without the least bit of means to, to bring about reconciliation and peace, the love of God and of a loving Heavenly Father, it streams down through Jesus Christ, the conduit of all love and grace and blessing. And from his precious lips come the word from the very heart of the triune Jehovah. Peace be unto you. Justified, righteous, cleansed, pure, spotless, and faultless welcomed into the family of the Most High God. Not the slightest bit of conflict or controversy. Peace be unto you. 
Oh, to know that peace, congregation, that is the greatest thing. That's the second thing to be be said about it. It's not merely a peace that is objectively true. Indeed, it is true that those who have faith in Jesus Christ and receive of his salvation, they can appropriate these words unto themselves as that which is the hard bedrock of absolute undisputable fact. But likewise, it is that which is appropriated unto our souls. It is that which is richly experienced in the heart of the child of God. You notice how it is that the apostle talks about it in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7. The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your minds and your hearts through Christ Jesus. The conscience of a sinner who is awakened to even a a bit of the reality of sin has so much to grieve and mourn when they would look at themselves. How it is that we have defiled the holy name of God with our careless prayers and with our formal worship. How it is we have brought reproach to the name of God through our careless conduct. How it is that we can go through each one of God's holy commandments and see ourselves to be wicked lawbreakers deserving of eternal judgment. And the conscience as God's God's witness bear into our souls that that is our state. It it gnaws at us and and it tortures us and it says, "What, what good is there to carry on? You are condemned, condemned, condemned. And then this peace of God floods into your hearts, a peace which your understanding cannot grasp the the measure of because it comes from heaven. It comes from divine power, and that is what guards your heart. It guards your mind. It It keeps you secure. It keeps you stable. It is that which which conquers your mind when it is going towards all kinds of worries and anxious cares, whether it be about your standing before God or whether it's God's love and preservation of you in this world full of suffering, whether it is that you will endure great hardship and, and pain in the future, whether it is that you can face death. All of these things, they are brought into the soul of the child of God. Peace be unto you. Christ brings peace into our souls. But I'd say in the third place, it's not only peace with God and peace in our souls, but it is a peace which transforms how we relate to other Christians. And this is dwelt dwelt in a number of of wonderful texts of scripture, but Colossians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Colossians 3, 14 and 15, it, it speaks in this way. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness or perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to, to the which also Ye are also called in one body and be thankful. The idea of of being called is that which brings you into 
the covenant congregation of true believers, that, that true body of Christ, which are all, all joined together because we're joined unto the head as, as his body. And since that call was a call of peace, so also it brings us into a state of peace with all other members of the body. There is not a one piece common to one member of the body of Christ that does not belong to, to the other. You notice how, how Jesus, he appears towards this gathering of his, of his people, all sorts of different backgrounds, different personalities, but he speaks to them with one voice, peace be unto you. There wouldn't be a, a one of them that he could not have said, condemnation I bring unto you. Why? Because they had all failed him. They'd all deserted him in his hour of need. They'd all fell asleep in the garden of Gethsemane. They'd all counted their own hides more to be preserved than to, to die by his side. And so it is with each one of us if, if we should stand before the presence of Christ. There's not a one of us who would not have reason to fall down and beg for mercy at how we have dishonored him. But that peace which Jesus gives, it is the common inheritance of all of the family of God. Peace be unto you. And so Paul says in those verses, doesn't he? And above all these things put on charity or love, which is the bond of perfectness. It is that which must issue forth from a true apprehension of this peace. And that is love for all of those who are sons of peace. We must, we must, congregation, not count the peace that belongs to the church, which was purchased by Christ and pronounced by Christ to be any small thing. Indeed, to, to our own hurt, we must preserve the peace that Christ has given. So is that not a wonderful thing, congregation? Jesus, he comes, and his word is one of peace. Is that not a Christ that you would long to have? Is that not a Christ that if you do have him, you will never let him go for anything? Peace be unto you. But I think it's, it's not only uh, that which is worthy of notice, not only his announcement of peace, but as well, his displaying of his wounds. Christ displays his wounds in verse 20. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad where they saw the Lord. Maybe I, uh, I've always looked at that and, and maybe not fully understood it for, for this reason. When I was a little boy, I had uh, an operation, and there's there a great big scar on my, my abdomen for that reason. And so sometimes if I was at, at school and going to the, to the pool to go um, swim, uh, someone would say, where's that scar come from? And, and there'd be a sort of self-conscious thing about, wow, you know, why, why is there, there a scar there? And it's the sort of thing that it seems as though it's a source of pain and, and sorrow to have something blemishing your, your body. Indeed, it, it might 
strike us as a very astonishing thing that Christ, who has passed through all of his suffering, all, through all of his humiliation, that he yet bears in his very body the signs of that humiliation, holes in his hands, a great gash in his side. Indeed, it's, uh, it's a, a very remarkable thing that these things remain, but not, not only that they remain, but that he is not ashamed to bear them openly. He looks at these disciples and says, not only look at my hands, look at my side. This is who I am. I am the one who is crucified. It's dwelt upon in other portions of Scripture as well, when uh, the same writer of this uh, book had that great vision of, of Christ in his heavenly glory. He noted in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6 that he was a lamb as it had been slain. So the marks of this, of this Savior and, and of his death, they were still visible even in heaven. And likewise, in the prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 12 and verse 10, Christ himself speaks of his people. And he he says this, They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his own son. You see, the marks of Christ's uh, crucifixion are with him, it appears, even in his glorified state. And if you would understand that these things are not that bring are not that which brings shame to Christ, not not at all, because they are the marks of He who has gone to the very depths of hell and suffering for those whom He loves. If you had a soldier who had borne a great injury and a and um, and the result of defending his country had a scar along his face or something like that, and you'd say, well, wouldn't you rather get rid of that scar? Maybe he would say, well, you know, I wouldn't take away that scar for anything because I took this injury defending the country that I love. Or you'd think about uh, a mother whose child is in a burning building. If she were to run into that, that building and to save those those children from the flame and to keep, bear the marks of that all her life long, would she have counted it a, a grievous thing to have lost her beauty in that injury if it were the case that that was the cost of paying, the cost to be paid for saving those whom she loved? And so likewise, in an infinitely greater way, this Christ who has loved his people with an everlasting love, he is not ashamed ashamed of his wounds that he bore in the salvation of his precious elect church. And so he bears them openly, not only because he has borne them in the way of obedience to his Father, in the way of accomplishing salvation, but in order that his people would think rightly about his death. Perhaps... If this had not been recorded in the scriptures, we would, as his people, think that the cross was something that ought never to be spoken about. What a shameful thing for Christ to be lifted up upon that tree as 
the one who received the scorn of both of, of earth and the, the wrath from heaven, perhaps it ought never to be spoken about, or if to be spoken up, spoken with, with, with faces that are, that are hung to the ground and in shame that Christ should suffer so. But Christ would not have it, have it that way at all. He says, this is a glorious thing. Look at my hands. Look at my side. Celebrate with me, my people. I have borne all of those agonies, all of that suffering, all of that grief. Why? For your good and for your salvation. Ultimately, for your peace. That is what we are to reflect upon. Not, on any, not just in any portion of the year, but all year long. The sufferings of Christ. That is what he had, would have us dwell upon. You notice how it is that they respond to this. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. What stability and confidence is awakened in the heart of the child of God when they behold the one who was slain. For their sins. What delight is awakened in the child of God when they come to see that this one who has suffered and died did so in my place. So that each mark that he received in this way, it is a, a sign and a token of his, of his eternal love. And it is that which brings such joy and gladness to the soul. Congregation, let us examine ourselves in this way. Is this the effect that the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ has upon us? Can we look upon this Christ as he's revealed also today in his word and say there is joy in our hearts today because Christ has conquered sin, death, and the grave. He has pronounced peace and pardon and he has sealed that to our souls and said, this is yours. Oh, congregation, Christ is so willing, so free, so open in giving this salvation. He comes and he doesn't hold back and say, well, you've got to do this and that in order to earn my peace. No, he says, look, look at my hands and feet. It is I, Christ, and I give you peace. The third and last consideration I would uh, leave you with congregation is not only that this uh, glorious risen Christ, he announces peace and displays his wounds, but in the third and last place, he explains our mission. He explains our mission. And I think that is uh, something that the, the church of Christ in our day desperately needs to hear because it is one thing to indeed have that firm persuasion of Christ's saving grace towards you. It is the thing which cannot be compared with to know that Christ has loved you from the foundation of the world. He has embraced you in his love. He has brought you into a state of peace towards God that you share with all of the faithful. But how, therefore, shall we live? What is it that the Lord has has saved us unto what is our place in the world in the light of this great salvation well jesus speaks unto his church in this way and he and he speaks of their mission verse 21 then said jesus to them again peace be unto you 
as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And uh, you, you have to love that congregation. He doesn't content with saying peace once. He says it another time. As he's beginning to lay upon these followers of his a greater calling and responsibility in this world, he pronounces it again. Peace be unto you. There is peace and forgiveness even for the one who would be called to serve him because there's, there's not a one of us who would dare do even a single thing to the service of Christ. If we rightly knew how great our sin is, even in the the calling that he gives us, surely if the sins of the world are deserving of damnation, how much a million times over those who would sin against Christ in, in the carrying out of his sacred mission. But so great is the compassion and mercy of Christ and so perfect is his atonement that peace begins here where he calls them unto this great mission. It's a mission with a very clear divine warrant. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. Christ came into the world at the calling and command of God the Father. In the execution of that covenant of redemption laid up in the counsel of God from eternity past that the Son of God should be born as a true and a righteous man, that he should suffer and die, that he should bring about salvation, and that he should proclaim peace to those in bondage to the devil. And just as surely as the Son of God was sent by the Father, so also does Jesus Christ the Son send his church. Indeed, you could say that there's, there's a particular way that this belongs to the disciples. They are, after all, the sent ones. That's what it means to be an apostle, to be one who is sent with authority to carry out a mission. So it's fitting that those who are sent, according to their name, would, would have it exactly laid out in these words of Christ. I am sending you with that same divine warrant and that same divine authority to the same world that is full of sin and confusion and death and the power of the devil and the condemnation of hell. I'm sending you into this world in which I was sent, not to carry out once again the satisfaction for sins through which I have accomplished, but rather to proclaim it, to announce it. And congregation, wherever the people of God are true to the apostolic faith, And the apostolic mission, they have this very same mission. Not only ministers of the gospel, not only office bearers, but each one of us, both young and old, both small and great, whatever our capacities, whatever our gifts, we are not here to serve ourselves. We are here to carry out this great and glorious mission. It's not the case that the Church of Jesus Christ is a pleasure cruise where we are, are here just kind of floating down the, the, um, the ocean of this world in order to bring uh, the maximum amount of uh, amusement and entertainment and comfort to ourselves. No, we are a battleship. And you put it this way, we are um, an invading army sent to storm the gates of hell 
at the command of our King in order that we would accomplish his mission to the praise of his glorious grace. And this mission of divine warrant, it, it has um, a very clear uh, message as well. It's put there in verse 23, whosoever sins ye remit, or you could also say forgive, whosoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven unto them, and whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. It is this that the apostles are called to shoulder, that they speak not as private persons, that they speak so much on behalf of Christ that when they proclaim his saving message of peace through his blood for all who believe upon his name and repent of their sins, they so speak for Christ that where they say your sins are forgiven you and they speak truly according to the word of God, that is, that is an administration of God's sovereign power to forgive sins through Jesus Christ. See, the the church of Jesus Christ speaks with authority. She speaks with the words of her king. And it is as truly certain when I say, Peace unto you, believer, who have cast your cares upon Christ. Peace be unto you, who have believed upon the name of the Son of God. It is as true and certain that you are forgiven, believer, as if Jesus Christ had said it unto you. Well, there's the other side of it as well, isn't there? Not only that there is forgiveness of sins, but also the retaining of sins. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. And the idea here is there are those who are still in the possession of sin. Sin has its hold upon them. They are in its grip. And they remain such. The reality is, if you have not believed upon the name of the Son of God, If you know nothing of his saving peace in your soul, if you have never once turned away from your sins such that you even desire to serve Christ in his mission, then I must say to you that your sins are retained. It is truly certain that uh, if you die in that condition, you will go to the place of torment. It's as, as true as if Christ himself said it. This is the saving message, Christ. He's the saving message, congregation. It's the message of Christ. And I think you'll agree, it, it reminds us that we're not messing around here. These are the things in which heaven and hell hang in the balance. These are the things in which every soul must reckon with. There are those whose sins are forgiven in Christ. There are those in whose, uh, in who are retained by their sin. And we are those who bear this message unto a world that is hostile and opposed to Christ. How is it that we could carry such a message of authority and, and forgiveness and of truth unto a world that is so hostile? Well, the answer is that there is also divine power in this mission. Verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. You see, Christ has not left us to carry out this mission in our own power or strength. Wherever we would do anything for the cause of his name, we do so with his mighty power 
at our disposal. He would never call you to anything without giving you his Holy Spirit in order to carry out that mission. What is it that Jesus has called you to, Christian? Where in your family? Where in this church? Where in your community? Where has he, he placed you and said, work out this glorious mission on my behalf. Be my hands, be my feet, be my mouth, be my ambassador. Know this, that wherever the Lord has placed you, he has not left you to yourself or to your own resources. When you think you come to the end of your resources and you say, I cannot take another step, when it seems as though Christ's presence is distance and, and his peace seems like only a faint echo and it seems as though you are, are just fooling yourself. Think about this scene. Jesus stooping down and breathing upon these sinful men, endowing them with all the gifts and powers that they need to carry out their mission. Oh, congregation, what a glorious seen before us, the risen Christ, his announcement of peace, displaying of his wounds, an explanation of our mission. And I hope that as we've reflected upon these things, that you have seen a sight of the mind and heart of Christ today. This is why we gather also on the first day of the week, on the beginning of this week. Let us earnestly strive to know something of his peace in our souls. Amen.